Al Jazeera podcast. On the coast of the Mediterranean Sea lies Gaza, a land that insists on living. In Gaza, you wake up every day and a symphony starts. A symphony that combines, you know, the scenes and the sounds of the fishermen rushing to the shore, to the restaurants, the, the, the chatter of the haunts. It's uh, like any other city on earth that is, you know, crowded and complex and rich and diverse. And as we know, its land and people are now under attack like nothing they've ever seen before. There is nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Penned in. This, a war like Gaza has never seen. Bombs from the air, shelling from the land, refugee camps, bakeries, even hospitals have come under Israeli bombardment. What we might now know as the world's largest open-air prison, or the target of one war after another, is a land that contains a long history, the history of the people living in it. On this episode of The Take, we're taking a moment to walk you through that history of Gaza, through some of its worst and best days. I'm Natasha Del Toro, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To understand Gaza itself and the people living there, we're getting a history lesson from someone who knows it well. My name is Jihad Abu Salim. You heard Jihad earlier. He's a historian of Gaza and the executive director of a nonprofit that educates the public on Palestine. His parents fled Gaza after the war in 1967, when Israel first occupied the territory. They ended up in Morocco, where Jihad was born. But when he was six, they went home to live in a town called Deir el-Bala. My first memory of going home was when I traveled with my mother from Morocco back to Deir el-Bala. And I remember driving through the dark streets and alleys of the Gaza Strip, making it to my grandmother's home. And she was baking pita bread on a small grill. And she fed me za'atar, which is thyme, that night. And the taste of that za'atar that I ate that night, it's, it's as if I, I just had it. And this was the beginning of uh, my journey, growing up in, in Deir el-Balah. As you were talking, I feel like I could smell, I could smell the fresh baked bread, you know, and taste it. It sounds so, it sounds so nice. For those who might not know, you know, about Gaza, it's often referred to now as the Gaza Strip, you know, with 2.3 million people who live there in a highly concentrated area. But it didn't always look the way we see it now, right? So let's take it all the way back before 1948, before the state of Israel was founded. What was Gaza like before it was the Strip? Before the Strip, there was the Gaza District. Historic Palestine, which was then controlled by the British, British Mandate Palestine. In 1917, General Allenby and his troops advanced across southern Palestine. And in December, 
they captured Jerusalem. By the following year, all of Palestine had come under British control. Her troops were to remain there for the next 30 years. And uh, one of Palestine's largest districts was the Gaza district. And the Gaza district was home to uh, more than 53 cities, towns, and villages that unfortunately are now, you know, in the territory controlled by what is the state of Israel. The area of the Gaza district was approximately 1,111 square kilometers, uh, which in 1948 was reduced to 365 square kilometers. And, and in that area, that's where you have 2.3 million people living. Yes. At the heart of all those towns and villages is Gaza City, a city that today is at the center of this stage of Israel's ground invasion. Even now, it's still the largest city in the state of Palestine. Gaza City has existed for thousands of years uh, and has had uh, uninterrupted human presence for uh, millennia. And it's a religious center for both Christians and Muslims. Jihad says all of this comes down to its location. If you are traveling from Asia to Africa, Gaza City is the last urban center that you hit. And the opposite is also true if you're traveling from Africa to Asia. Um, this is the first main city that you encounter. And that gave Gaza strategic importance because, you know, uh, think about how many armies have passed through Palestine throughout the ages. In 1500 BC, a king of Egypt used Gaza as a base of operations against Syria. Alexander the Great fought here, and here the British fought three battles in the First World War. Later on, uh, Gaza became an important place for trade in, in the region. So Gaza becomes this important hub. You know, the, these, these anecdotes describe the importance of the city of Gaza and, and, and how important it's been in the different chapters of Palestine's history. And, you know, how do you still see some of these anecdotes that you're describing reflected in the Gaza city that you have known? Um, you know, we know what's happening in Gaza now, but we don't know or don't maybe don't remember what it's like to be in Gaza City on its best days and the days when you were growing up, for example? I mean, the life goes on and people embrace life regardless. I guess my message here is that 75 years of occupation and conquest and, and a century of colonialism uh, have really deprived us of the richness and the beauty of uh, what it means to live in this land and to embrace all the possibilities it offers. But despite that, people in Gaza and in other parts of Palestine, they continue to embrace life. And for you, on its best day, what would Gaza City be? Um, it would be a beautiful spring day, and you would be in downtown Gaza, and you would feel a beautiful, chilly, cold breeze coming from the Mediterranean Sea. You go on a walk, you visit your friends, you smoke hookah at the beach, order a cup of tea and talk for hours. <laughs> uh, you know, just <laughs> do what, what young people do. Oh, and also, 
watching the sunset and the horizon over the Mediterranean and listening to Um Kulthum. She sings a genre called tarab, which is kind of similar to blues. Creates like an element of drama in the background, which makes the sunset much more beautiful to see and witness. It's like heaven. But Jihad has also made a study of Gaza's worst days, going back to what's known as the Nakba in 1948 the mass-forced expulsion of Palestinians during the events that led to the creation of the State of Israel. Palestine becomes an armed camp. Haganah troops search for Arabs after capturing the city. Arab strongpoints are taken after being blasted to rubble. During the mopping up... 1948 was a moment of rupture for Palestinians. So, you know, that was a very painful process people, as the result of the war in Palestine, have either fled or been expelled from their homes and their livelihood. So, from 1948 on, the Gaza Strip becomes a big refugee camp. Those people were farmers, they were peasants, they lived in villages that were uh, self-sufficient for centuries, and now they are refugees. And the first years of being refugee in Gaza were incredibly painful. People lived in tents. Uh, The winters were brutal. Kids were dying. Diseases spread. And, you know, people were in a state of shock. Remember, when these people left, they they rushed out of the door thinking that they would go back. Palestine is rocked by full-scale war and both sides mobilized. Arab captives are held for evacuation to Acre. Women flee with what belongings they can carry. Since then, Jihad says, the loss of their homeland is something Palestinians in Gaza are reminded of every day. There are people in the Gaza Strip today who every day wake up, go to the roof or the balcony of their home, and they could see their villages and towns right across the fence in the horizon. So it's not, it's not abstract. That's why there are no monuments for the Nakba in Gaza, because Gaza itself is a monument of 1948. I know we're we're talking a lot about the history, but it would be a mistake to ignore in our conversation what just happened in the Jabalia refugee camp, which is the largest of the eight in Gaza. Tons of explosives dropped on a refugee camp. Jabalia is one of the Gaza Strip's biggest refugee camp. Jihad, you know, I know we've been talking about 1948, but these refugee camps are decades old at this point. Uh, What can you tell us about Jabalia and the people who've had to make a life there? You know, when we're talking about 70% of the residents of the Gaza Strip being refugees, that's a large number of people. People ended up in refugee camps, and they have been living in those refugee camps ever since because they believe that no one has the right to impose demographic and geographic realities at the barrel of the gun. And at the same time, There is nowhere else for them to live in Gaza besides the camp because Gaza has limited territory 
and they yearn to their to their villages. They know that the tombs of their ancestors are there. They know that they they own the the deeds. They they pass them to their kids, and they know that the only way forward for them is to reclaim uh, what is theirs. Over the decades, the tents Jihad described turned into dwellings, concrete buildings that grew vertically. They saved their entire lives to build vertically. You know, people add one floor on top of another so that, you know, we have the extended family living in, in a single vertical building. And that's why the casualties are high, because you could end up with a three or four floor building mm. where, you know, more than one generation live in one building. More of Jabelia's history and the rest of Gaza after the break. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Jihad Abu Salim has been walking us through Gaza's history from ancient times to present day. In 1967, Israel conquers the Gaza Strip. Israeli spearheads race to the Gaza Strip, advance across the entire Sinai, taking Sharm el-Sheikh at the mouth of the Gulf of Aqaba, thus breaking the blockade. But then, what Israel did in 67 is that it embarked on a settlement project even within the refugee camp. And they intentionally took over Gaza's most fertile lands. That meant Israeli settlers moving in right next to Palestinian towns. And it wasn't just space that settlers took up, as Jihad witnessed firsthand. I grew up next to one called Kfar Darom in the middle of the Gaza Strip. They divided the Gaza Strip into three main regions. And due to their presence, of course, Israel does what it excels at. They built checkpoints that, you know, rendered people's lives really, really difficult. So, for example, I have a brother who needed a surgery in 2004. I needed medical attention. And a drive that normally would take 15 to 20 minutes, sometimes it would take days just for the checkpoint to open to allow us to cross from from one, one place to another. And of course, having the settlements in Gaza also meant that Israeli forces would do incursions, arrests, they would impose curfews, and they would target the communities that lived around these settlements, destroy their farms, destroy their property, in order to suppress any form of resistance against the presence of these settlements in Gaza. But in 1987, Palestinian resistance to Israel broke out in Gaza, the West Bank, and inside Israel. It became known as the Intifada, or the shaking off. It was an uprising. And it was sparked by Israeli violence in Jabalia refugee camp, the camp that was bombed twice last week. Again today, all over the West Bank and Gaza Strip, young Palestinians rioted against Israeli occupation. Then in 2000, there was the second intifada, which had its roots in continued Israeli aggression against Palestinians. Israeli governments refused to abide by agreements that were meant to end the occupation. 
and lead to an independent Palestinian state. The Second Intifada grew out of frustration over the collapse of the peace process in 2000. Palestinian tactics now focused on suicide bombings, rocket attacks and sniper fire, which Israel met with even deadlier force. Out of that volatile period came another tactic in 2005. In what was called disengagement, Israel pulled out its troops from Gaza and ordered settlers to evacuate. But it didn't consult Palestinians on when or how. They just left suddenly. What people forget is that the settlement enterprise in Gaza played a critical role in rendering life in Gaza unsustainable in making life impossible for Palestinians there. The soldiers that you have seen are the last ones to leave the Gaza Strip. The mission is completed, an era has ended. From this moment on, the responsibility for all that takes place in Gaza Strip lays on the Palestinians. The responsibility for the security of the Israelis is all ours. So today, uh, Israel supporters talk about how Israel, you know, was generous and quote-unquote gave the Palestinians Gaza. You know, referring to the Israelis pulling their settlers in 2005 from the Gaza Strip, which was nothing but a mere redeployment of Israeli settlers and forces so that they can focus on colonizing the West Bank. At the same time that control of Gaza was changing, there were also transformations in Palestinian governance. The Palestinian Authority was set up during the 1990s as transitional leadership on the way to creating an independent Palestinian state. And in 2006, it held legislative elections. The international community, mainly the United States, came and said, well, it's about time for Palestinians to have democracy. And the elections took place in Gaza and in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. And the winners? Hamas, also known as the Islamic Resistance Movement. The Take has done an entire episode on Hamas and how it's changed over the decades in its relationship with Israel and the Palestinian people. We'll link that in our episode notes, but we'll tell you a few parts of that history. The Palestinian public was fed up of, you know, the corruption, and they had a lot of political criticisms of the approach of the Palestinian Authority from the 90s onwards. Hamas was known for being a party that was providing social services, supporting marginalized communities, and so on and so forth, and also engaging in armed resistance against the Israelis, so that gave them a lot of credibility uh, and popularity in, in the Palestinian street. And Palestinians voted for Hamas. From the frustration of dispossession and economic despair has risen a new leadership. Radical, untested, unpredictable. It's called the Islamic Resistance Movement, Hamas. And its rise has appalled the Israelis, astonished the West, and surprised not a few Palestinians themselves. It was shocking for the international community that Hamas won. Hamas won the majority of seats in the Palestinian parliament against the expectations of the international community because Hamas ran against Fatah, 
which is uh, the party that has controlled the PLO and the Palestinian Authority for decades. And it's the party that still controls the Palestinian Authority today because there hasn't been an election since. But after the election in 2006, things took a turn because while the Palestinian Authority recognizes Israel, Hamas doesn't. Israel has said it will not deal with the Palestinian government that includes Hamas. I think the president, President Bush, uh, understands that you can't deal with Hamas and the chances for peace are, are really out the window for the foreseeable future. Once Palestinians voted for Hamas, the international community changed its mind about democracy and they said, no, that doesn't work. Here are the conditions. Hamas refused to the dictations of the international community and to, you know, recognize Israel uh, as a a political party. They argued that, you know, the PLO has already recognized Israel. Why is Hamas required to do that? So, you know, and then that created a situation in which the international community used sanctions uh, as a form of collective punishment to punish Palestinians for their democratic choice. And it put in motion the series of events that led to the blockade and then led to the successive wars on Gaza uh, leading up to the moment today. With a government in the West Bank led by the Palestinian Authority and a government in Gaza led by Hamas. We've touched a lot on Gaza's history and its past, and, and now we're watching its present and seeing a glimpse of its future. As you're watching what's happening in Gaza, someone who still has family there, what do you make of it? I'm concerned. Um, I'm concerned that Israel is using this moment to complete its vision for maximum Palestinian land, minimum Palestinians on it. I mean, based on reports that we saw, the Israelis are seriously considering expelling Palestinians to the Sinai. But at the same time, you know, like in 1948, when Israel expelled hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, they're still here and they still demand their rights and freedom and dignity. So I think the question for us is, what vision do we have for life in this part of the world? And why do we have to be stuck in this endless cycle of violence, erasure, expulsion, and oppression? And I, you know, for me... It's painful because we have been trying to say for decades this doesn't work and there is a need for an alternative vision. And I think this is this is what's needed now is to is to come together and just act on the conviction that this hasn't worked and we need an alternative path forward. And that's the take. We want to hear what you think. If you've got questions or anything else that you'd like us to cover, find us on social at AGE Podcasts. For more on Gaza's recent history, you can listen to our episode, The Past, Present, and Future of Hamas. It's linked in the show description. This episode was produced by Chloe K. Lee and David Enders, with Zaina Bader, Sonia Bagat, Faranisa Campana, Suri Al-Khalili, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Khaled Sultan, Amy Walters, and me, Natasha Del Toro. 
in for Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexander Locke is the Take's executive producer. And Nate Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.